Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Welcome to Palace Confidential, your home for all the latest breaking royal news right here on Mail Plus. And speaking of home, we're back there again, zooming into you to make the show. But do not worry, we still have all the best possible content for you about the royal family. Here's what you've got coming up today. Prince Charles wants to save the planet again. And as Fergie makes a move into the saucy book world, we have an exclusive and eye-opening extract. And as Harry and Meghan quit Instagram, we look at the royals' love-hate relationship with the media. But first, well, just as it looked like the combination of the pandemic and quite a few hefty podcast commitments would mean that we wouldn't be seeing Harry and Meghan in the UK for a while, the Queen has gone and invited them to her birthday party. We'll hear for all the latest on that and more is the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. So, Rebecca, tell us all about this event. Yeah, so I think there's some things that have got lost in translation here. It's basically the um, Troop in the Colour, which is the Queen's official birthday celebrations in June. It happens every year. And when Harry and Meghan quit the royal family, the Queen made very, very clear they were still members of her family and they would be welcome at family events such as this. And the early indications from Buckingham Palace is that they do hope to hold the Troop in the Colour event this year, maybe a slightly scaled down version. And the expectation is that certainly Harry, but possibly Meghan and Archie, if it's safe to fly, will be there. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because if they don't go, it looks like some sort of huge snub. If they do go, it runs the risk of being all about them, all eyes on them. No, I I see what you mean. I mean, I do think if there is any way possible, Harry will be there, definitely. I think... Megan and Archie slightly less so, but 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 I think they will aim to be there if they can. But but you're right. I mean, if they are there, I mean the body language on that balcony is going to be fascinating, <laughs> and it's just all anyone's going to be looking at. I know it's been the Queen's 95th birthday, which is remarkable. But yeah, I absolutely agree with you. All eyes will be on that balcony. Now let's talk about this uh, move of Harry and Meghan's to quit social media. Was that a surprise to you? Well, there's been a little bit of confusion over this story. So the Sunday Times originally claimed at the weekend, quoting a source close to Harry and Meghan, that they were quitting social media. Now, for source, read one of their official spokesmen in America or the UK. For some reason, they just don't like to be quoted on the record. But within hours of that being claimed, another source, for which read a spokesman in America or England, probably America, uh, said that actually that was speculation. Um, The truth of it is, I I think, is that they've got no plans to immediately go back on social media, but they obviously want to hold that option out for the future. Um, And certainly Archwell, this new um, not-profit organisation they've set up, one of their initial focuses is going to be on building a kinder online community. So I can see why they wouldn't want to immediately go back on social media given that. But I think inevitably, if they want to get their message out, they probably will have to return to it 
in the future at some point. What What do you make of the um, speculated reason that it's because uh, they they don't like the sort of like the, the nastiest nastiness and the trolling on social media? Whereas you know, I have some cynics might say that um, there are so many other ways for them to monetize their content now, as as we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have been affected um, by the kind of negativity on social media, to be fair to them. I mean, Megan pointed out that in 2019, she was the most trolled woman online, apparently. Um, although how she knows that when she says she doesn't read any of the comments about herself, I don't know. Um, so I, I, I know it has been, a, it has affected them a lot, um, even though actually before... Um, uh, before they quit the royal family, they were both very prolific users of social media, both privately and professionally. But I think I think a lot of people would agree with them. We need to try and develop kinder online communities. Um, uh, but as I say, I think we discussed this last week. What, what I find difficult, and I agree with that personally, but what I think a lot of people find difficult to reconcile is that they are doing deals with companies such as Netflix and Spotify who are publicizing their work for them online so it's like other people are doing the work for them and I think they need to try and find a way to navigate this because otherwise they're constantly going to be accused of hypocrisy. Staying on the subject of social media, royal expert Victoria Murphy has been looking at how the royals have dealt with modern technology over the years. When the Queen delivered her recent Christmas Day message to the nation, it was broadcast on television, but it was also put out live on the internet and on social media. And we're so used to seeing our members of the royal family now on social media and online that it's really easy to forget that once there was no royal Instagram, there was no royal Twitter. And actually, the Christmas Day broadcast started as a live radio broadcast on the wireless in 1932. The first Christmas Day broadcast was made by King George V and they were delivered by radio throughout the reign of King George VI and at the start of Elizabeth's reign until the first one was televised in 1957. And today they're very different, they're very sophisticated production interspersed with video footage of engagements and actually the development of these annual broadcasts really does highlight just how the royal family has moved with the times and embraced technology. The Queen's coronation in 1953 was the first coronation to be televised. The first royal wedding to be shown on television was that of Princess Margaret to Anthony Armstrong Jones in 1960. Prince Philip became the first royal to give a television interview in 1961. The Queen sent her first email in 1976 and the royal family launched its first official website in 1997. The Royal Family's website was redesigned and relaunched in 2009 and it was around that time that the Royal Family began to set up their first accounts on social media. A Royal YouTube channel was the first to be set up in 2007, uh, the Royal Family joined Twitter in 2009 and the Queen joined Facebook in 2010. During her Diamond Jubilee year in 2012, the Royal Family proudly announced that it had picked up extra Twitter followers and reached a total of almost 350,000, but today their following completely dwarfs that at 4.3 million. Clarence House and Kensington Palace also have their own social media accounts set up in 2010 on Twitter and 2015 respectively. I can actually remember a time when the Kensington Palace Twitter account used to have a profile picture of the palace itself until I think someone cottoned onto the fact that people were not following for updates on the building. Um, and in fact, just recently actually, Kensington Royal Twitter account changed its name to the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and Clarence House changed its name to the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall. 
The only prominent members of the royal family not to have a presence on social media are the Sussexes, and it's recently been claimed that they plan to leave social media for good. Uh, they were once devotees. They set up Instagram handles Sussex Royal, and they gained 10.4 million followers before they stepped back as working royals a year ago. However, since relaunching under the name of Archerwell, they've yet to set up a new social media platform. Today, the working royals use their social media to highlight their work, often posting pictures or videos of engagements that they've attended and videos of any speeches that they've made. The royal family has also issued social media guidelines which ask that comments don't contain spam, they aren't defamatory, they aren't offensive, threatening or abusive, and they've also said that they will block users who don't follow the guidelines. And very recently, Clarence House has turned the comments off on its Twitter feed uh, following a spate of offensive comments that were left after people watched the latest series of The Crown. It's a sign of how much the Royal Internet operation has expanded that they now employ people to post content on their social media channels to manage their presence online. The Royals rarely post themselves, but occasionally they do, and when that happens, the tweet is usually signed with the initials of the member of the Royal Family. One royal who does have her own personal social media account is Princess Eugenie. She uses it to post updates about charity work she's doing, also updates about her life, her personal life, and she has gained 1.2 million followers. Let's discuss this now with my delightful Zoom panel, the Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine and the Saturday Diary editor Richard Eden. Hello, hello and welcome. Morning. So, Sarah... Were you surprised about Harry and Meghan retreating from social media? I'm not surprised at anything those two do. They just do whatever gets them the most attention. I mean, <laughs> honestly, everybody's bored with them. So they, they, I mean, every time, we're all sick and tired of them. I'm sick and tired of them. Everyone's sick and tired of them. No one cares about them anymore. They're completely irrelevant. And so they're just doing things to make themselves relevant. And one of the things they can do is to come off social media because then everyone will go, ah! Harry and Meghan are not on social media anymore. What does it mean? It just means that. So, know, do, do you? Oh, sorry. Do you think it's children? Sorry. Yeah, but do you think it's more calculated then, or do you think that it, it just shows how sensitive they are? No, I think it's totally calculated. There's, there's probably going to be some announcement about a second baby or something. So they're probably, you know, coming off social media for mental health reasons, so that you know they can prepare for the announcement. I don't know. I just don't. I just don't. They don't seem to do anything um, sincerely uh, at all. Those two, um, and it's and it's odd because of course they want to be seen as very sincere, but it just all comes across as very very calculated but I think they're now part of that um well I don't think they ever stopped I don't think Megan actually ever stopped being part of that very sort of Californian sort of circle where this sort of thing is is just is just how people behave um and I think that uh she's just sort of uh, she's just I mean she's not behaving any differently from any other sort of celebrity who wants to get headlines and attention and you know media space She's just doing. She's just doing what they all do, which is to sort of control their image and sort of drip feed information to their fans, and basically keep everyone wanting more. I mean, it's only grumpy old ladies like me who um, who who don't fall for it. <laughs> I must say, I'm a bit sceptical as to how long this will last because when they were prevented by the Queen from using the Sussex Royal title, they made clear on their website that they would be returning to social media with some new titles. So um, 
you know, it really does. Um, we'll see how it plays out. But and I also wonder whether, you know, perhaps they're on it anonymously. There's a lot of people on social media under pseudonyms. You know, can they really stay away? They've made clear before that they're very interested in reading everything that's written about them, even, you know, comments beneath articles. So um, forgive me for being a little bit sceptical. How do you think this will be viewed by the companies that they've got these lucrative um you know, podcast and TV contracts with, because presumably they're a bit aghast that it shuts down a huge part of Harry and Meghan's audience, i.e. their currency. Possibly, but then again, it might add to the sort of air of exclusivity about them. They might, these companies like Spotify might want, um, you know, the only place that you can hear Harry and Meghan is on their new podcast. So, I don't know. Remember, you know, do they really need to be on anyway? I mean, they've got, you know, people, you know, like Omid Scobie, who essentially act as their voice pieces and, um, you know, that they can speak for them online. No, I agree with I agree with Richard. I was going to say, I think it might even be, you know, a tactic because, you know, this, as, 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 as Richard says, you know, if you're paying a lot of money for somebody's content, you don't really want them, them spouting it for free on their social media channels. So, you know, much better to have it behind a paywall or a, or a subscription service. And maybe that maybe that's one of the reasons they've done it. I don't know. I mean, I'd like to think that they've done it because they've, that you know, they're, they're, they're having some sort of quiet, normal time together. But I just, I don't know. The track record of these two doesn't make me think that that's why they've done it. But I could be proved wrong and I would be very happy to be proved wrong and to apologise profusely and grovel. But um, I suspect that won't be happening. Let's let's move on to the Queen now. And Sarah, do you think Her Majesty's being a little bit mischievous with this uh, arrangement for the birthday celebrations and inviting Harry and Meghan? I think she's doing exactly the right thing. She ha- she should invite them. They, uh, you know, he is her grandson. Uh, she she's 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 doing what the Queen always does, which is she's 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 respecting the protocol. Um, she couldn't not invite them, could she? Can you imagine if she hadn't invited them, the funeral? Um, she has to invite them, uh, and and it's up to them to come. I think they should come, uh, personally. I think it'd be very rude not to come to her birthday celebrations. But who knows? <laughs> we, you know, it's not like, you know, these two don't don't uh, don't don't really follow the the, the rules of, of royal etiquette. And in fact, that's you know one of the reasons they want to live in America is because they don't want to follow the rules of royal etiquette. But um, I think at least Harry should come. I mean, Meghan doesn't have to come if she doesn't want to, but I think it would be nice if Meghan came, if uh, Harry came. I think it is a genuine dilemma for Harry and Meghan because, you know, the Trooping the Colour is the military celebration of the Queen's birthday. And obviously the military links for Harry were the thing he treasured most, you know, and he was stripped of those. So to come back and see all, you know, the, his former troops marching and everything is very very awkward but then Trooping the Colour is also a family celebration where traditionally the whole family gathers on Buckingham Palace balcony and you know from our program we still have that very old image now of the entire royal family on the balcony and we want to see that again but I really can't see that happening can you? Yeah I, I think yes obviously he is you know he's the Queen's grandson but do you think they might be thinking, well, if we come, it, it, it risks making the entire event a, a, a feast for, you know, all eyes on Harry and Meghan. Well, that's up to them, isn't it? I mean, he can just fly quietly home 
and sit in Frogmore Cottage until it's time to go and then go and then, you know, not make a big thing about it. I mean, I also, I suspect the Queen is just, I mean, how many Dripping of the Colours has she done now? I mean, you know, it's not as though, uh, I, you know, I think, she, I think she just wants to have, uh, she's done the right thing. She's, she's followed the etiquette. She would like to have him there. He's invited, you know, it's, it, 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 and, and even if it is a bit about him, then, then so what? I mean, because it is, I mean, so much about the royal family these days is about this schism. So I think, I think that's fair enough, to be honest. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there, there is a risk of that, but it won't be all about him because at the end of it, it's still the Queen at the heart of it all. From what I hear, it's much more likely that we will see um, Harry and Meghan here for the unveiling of the statue of Princess Diana on what would have been her 60th birthday. I think they would see that as, you know, an occasion that they really must be here. And, and that would be uh, avoiding all the potential problems of, of trooping the colour. Um, and that also I think, ties in with the time of the Invictus Games um, that Harry's organising for ex-servicemen in The Hague in the Netherlands. So I think he would come over for both of those big events. We'll be back in a moment with Sarah and Richard, but for now let's get a little bit more royal news out of Rebecca English. Rebecca, tell us about Charles's latest green initiative. So this week, Charles has unveiled his Terra Carta, his Earth Charter. And actually, a lot of people around him saying this really is the pinnacle of the work he's been doing on the environment for the last 50 years and basically involves getting big businesses in the private sector together to promise to put sustainability at the heart of the post-pandemic recovery and he's got some big names involved in this already you've got Bank of America you've got BP you've got Heathrow uh, Heathrow there's there's some really big international firms involved in this and don't forget I mean Charles has been banging the drum about the environment and climate change as I said for half a century he gave his first speech warning of the perils of plastic at the age of 21 and over the years I mean he's been really lampooned for some of his views but actually it turns out a lot of what he was saying was quite prophetic and they see this charter as a as a means of bringing all of those um threads that he's been working on together you know in one place this is quite um political territory though isn't it i can see why people would say that but i just think there is a view that we, we can't be political about this. We have to put sustainability at the heart of what we do moving forward. Otherwise, we are going to be see a return to a kind of a cycle, I think, of, of pandemics. And this is what Charles is trying to focus on. He's saying, unless we change our way we live and work fundamentally now, we are, we are never going to move past this. I suppose what I'm wondering when I ask that is, is, will there be government involved in this initiative? Because it seems like the kind of thing that they should be spearheading. He certainly has had discussions with governmental organisations, but this is very much about the private sector. You know, he's made the point that there have been a string of broken promises over the years, which have involved governments around the globe. And he feels, obviously, because our whole lives are dictated so much by private industry unless we get the private sector involved we're not really going to move forward so he's already had a, a kind of commitment of 10 billion dollars to be invested in sustainable industry and investments in the next 12 months so you know i think he's pretty optimistic about this but there is still a long way to go now clearly um his environmental passions have rubbed off on his older son prince william do you think there's going to be any competition between this initiative and Prince William's Earthshot? 
Definitely not, according to the people I speak to. In fact, they've made the point to me that Charles and his oldest son are working in harmony more than ever on issues such as the environment. I know Charles is very proud of what William is doing with Earthshot and, and doesn't see them as mutually exclusive. And I think he thinks the the more the better, really. You know, if they come at it from different angles, then maybe they might actually have some success in this field. How do you fancy taking a trip from the sublime to the faintly ridiculous? We're going to be discussing Sarah Ferguson's latest money spinner, writing steamy books. But before we get into that with our guests, let's take a look at Sarah making this announcement herself. A heart for a compass. Follow your heart, but do you dare? I'm going to take you back with the wonderful Mills and Booth to 1870 to Lady Moffat. Lady Margaret, she loves to ride side saddle. She's strong, she's rebellious, she's courageous. We are going to publish in August 2021, and I'm so excited! So pre-order now and come with me on this extraordinary journey. So, Rebecca, um, cynics, other, not me, but cynics, will ask, did she actually write this? Oh my God, this is my favourite story of the week by Country Mile. Um, uh, yeah, as, as you will have heard, um, the Duchess of York has penned her first bodice ripper. She's been signed up by Mills and Boons as a novelist. She's bringing out her first book, Her Heart for a Compass, in August next year. Now, she has, she's quite open about it. She has worked with one of Mills and Boons's uh, leading writers, but very much insists that the the idea and the story development and, and a, a large part of the writing is hers. It's actually based on a distant ancestor. And I think there's a, a heavy, heavy dollop of her own life and love thrown in there. I mean, it's just going to be fascinating. Oh, my gosh. People will be pouring over it to guess which bits are Fergie's life. Yeah. And what, what a life she has lived, <laughs> I have to say. Now, have you read the book, Rebecca? I haven't read the book. In fact, I've never read a Mills and Boons, I swear. Oh, I um, don't believe you. <laughs> no, I haven't read the book. But in the Daily Mail this week, we did have an exclusive extract. And I have read that. And I, I from reading that, I suspect uh, for aficionados of the genre, there are enough dashing heroes and, you know, tempestuous heroines to keep them all satisfied. I mean, jo jo joking aside, it was fascinating this week. Apparently... A Mills and Boone's book is sold every 10 seconds in the UK. I mean, this is this is big business. I couldn't quite believe it. You know, it's it's a really successful industry. And, you know, Fergie has tapped into that. Rebecca English there. And don't go anywhere because at the end of the show, we're going to be having a very special look at an exclusive extract from that book. For now, let's get some more thoughts on it from Sarah and Richard. Coming to you first, Sarah, how many Mills and Boone books are on your shelf behind you there? Will you be adding to your collection? Oh, precisely none. I hate romance. <laughs> you um, hate them. I hate romance novels. I suppose, I don't think I even never really read the Jilly Cooper ones. I like sci-fi and horror and politics. Well, maybe Fergie could write a sexy sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of all of this? I'm dying well, to know. I mean, we absolutely certainly 100% know she hasn't written it because all Mills and Boons are written on, a, on an algorithm, aren't they? I mean, you know, roughly, you know, he grabbed her heaving shoulders, you know, pushing her gently to the ground, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all just, it's all just click, click and go. I don't think it's, um, 
I mean, I know that if you are a ghostwriter for Mills and Boone, you make a lot of money, but that's because they sell a lot of books. Um, yeah, mm. no, it's not really my thing. What about you, Richard? Do you, I, I will be mining it for clues as to how much of this mirrors Fergie's actual romantic romps. What do you think? I'm actually really looking forward to reading it. I, I've never read a Mills and Boone novel, but now... I don't I be believe you. <laughs> now, <laughs> Richard, be Richard, Richard, you're a Mills and Boone hero. You're, you're out <laughs> of one of those novels, surely. <laughs> From the extracts I've seen... That's how we all see you in the office anyway. <laughs> we've, we've, all, we've all had a good laugh. But um, the thing about Sarah Ferguson is she does have some great ideas. It was her idea to come up with um, making a film about the, the life of a young Queen Victoria. And that was turned into a terrific film, The Young Victoria, by Martin Scorsese, of all people, with a script written by Julian Fellows, who went on to make Downton Abbey. And then ITV created a whole series about Queen Victoria starring Jenna Coleman. So she does have some good ideas. Um, so, you know, it might have a really good, fun plot, this, this book. Um, but, you know, I've seen a few of her other books in the past, but they haven't more been sort of children's books, you know, Budgie the Helicopter and stuff. So yeah. I'm sure this will be a whole different level. She's, um, the thing about Sarah Ferguson is that she is irrepressible, isn't she? I sort of love her for that. She has so many ideas. And she did have that whole thing where she did a whole load of teas. Do you remember she did sort of kind of posh tea? She just has endless, endless ideas for, for crazy businesses and and... And, you know, this is obviously just another one of her many, many, many projects that she's got on the go. Sarah is, you know, obviously she's very tight-knit family, her and the daughters and Andrew. Who, but it's going to be quite awkward, isn't it, for either Beatrice or Eugenie to be reading or proofreading this? It does seem that with Prince Andrew seemingly unable to do anything, you know, Fergie's really stepped into the breach and has about 2,000 projects on the go at the moment. Um, we, we've seen Andrew in the background helping her with her charity projects before, you know, perhaps Andrew is also lending a, lending a hand with the book, coming up with some plot ideas. Oh, that sounds very, very distasteful. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, are we looking at, the, you know, the, the birth of the new Barbara Cartland here? Well, I mean, I mean, uh, who, who was, uh, uh, Barbara Cartland was related, wasn't she, to, isn't she Richard, or have I just imagined that? Isn't she related in some way? Um, to the... Princess Diana, wasn't she? By, by marriage, yes, wasn't yeah. she? She was someone's so. wife or ex-wife or third wife or 15th wife or whatever those aristocrats get up to. Anyway, one of those. Yeah, so, so, so maybe, yes. Maybe it could be a, 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 a rich new scene for her to mine. Um, we should probably read it first and see whether it's got legs. <laughs> I can't wait. Richard Eden and Sarah Vine there. Well, that's all we've got time for, sadly, but we wouldn't leave you hanging without just a little teasing extract from Sarah Ferguson's new book. So we've got just enough time for the Palace Confidential team to give you this very special reading of Her Heart for a Compass. Montague House, London, Wednesday, July 19, 1865. Ah, there you are. It's fast approaching midnight, my dear. Lord Rufus Ponsonby, the Earl of Killen, was considered by most to be a presentable looking man. His angular jaw was invariably clean-shaven. His hair was perfectly coiffed. His tall, rather lean figure was always immaculately dressed. His aquiline profile was suitably haughty, as befitted an earl of the realm. Every aspect of him was austere, repressed and calculated. 
Lady Margaret Montague Douglas Scott took an involuntary step back as he loomed over her. I am all too aware of that. Why are you skulking in the shadows? Perhaps you are fretting about your attire, he continued, answering his own question. Allow me to reassure you. Your gown is neither too simple nor too ornate for the occasion. All young ladies in their first season wear white. Look at me, Margaret persisted. Don't you think I resemble a ghost at my own betrothal party? I am quite literally a spectre at the feast. I think your tendency to be fanciful is coming to the fore. His lordship, his attention on his watch, didn't notice the note of suppressed hysteria in her tone. Lord Rufus checked his gold timepiece against the ballroom clock, frowning, checking again, making a minor adjustment, then checking it one last time, before snapping the case closed and returning it to his waistcoat pocket. We had better join your parents for the announcement, he said. They will be getting anxious. I think if anyone has a right to be anxious, she said, smiling through gritted teeth, it should be me. My life is about to change forever, after all. Though he smiled in return, it was a token effort that failed to be reflected in his eyes. We are on the brink of a new life together, Lady Margaret. I, for one, am eager to embrace it. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential. Confidential.